Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Welcome back. Today, my guest is Tom Hartman, a radio personality and author, former psychotherapist, and a progressive political commentator. Hartman authored several books in the area of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, known as ADHD. The books are called ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World, The Edison Gene, and Adult ADHD, as well as Living with ADHD. Hartman is also the creator of the famous hunter versus farmer theory, saying that ADHD is an expected evolutionary adaptation to hunting lifestyles. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thank you, Roma. Great to be here with you. Same here, really. Thanks, thanks for taking the time. Uh, I'm just really amazed to be talking to you because it goes way back when our son Kai was diagnosed and a friend of us said, you should read this book. And I was very judgmental at first. I was like, well, because at the time, the original version, right, was called ADHD, A Different Perception. And I thought, okay, I'm open, fine, I'll read it. And I, I remember it was like three hours later, maybe, or four, I was done. And it really gave me, uh, it, it put the traits of, of someone with ADHD in a, in a different light for me. It made my son, as well as myself, I'm undiagnosed, but um, it made me see myself in a positive light. Uh, when did you, how did this happen? When did you come up with this? When did the, the big light bulb go on with this theory, hunters versus farmers? Well, there were two steps to it. Um, back in the late 70s, early 80s, I was the executive director of a residential treatment facility for severely uh, abused and emotionally disturbed kids in New Hampshire. And virtually all of the kids who came through our program had a, a label that was the early version of this. It was called hyperkinesis or the hyperactive syndrome. And um, I, I was uh, very curious as to why, you know, what, what was this, where did this label come from? What does this mean? Um, ben Feingold in 78 had written a book called Why Your Child is Hyperactive. And he theorized that it was all about food additives. And so I hopped on a plane and went out to San Francisco and spent a couple of days with Ben Feingold in his apartment overlooking uh, the Golden Gate Bridge and, um, you know, heard his whole pitch. I'd read his book. And we came back, I came back and we ran about a six month test taking all the salicylates out of our kids' diets. There are obviously artificial salicylates, food colorings, but there's also natural ones. They're like heavy in raspberries and things. And so we put our kids on a salicylate free diet and we found out about 30 kids. We had one kid who we could actually see a change in his behavior. And that one kid also had eczema, which is a skin condition. And interestingly enough, Ben Feingold was a pediatric allergist or dermatologist, and he was dealing with kids who had skin disease. So um, I think he had a, a sample bias problem there. But anyhow, I wrote that up, the results of that uh, study that we did in the Journal of Orthomolecular Psychiatry in October of, uh, or in the fall of uh, 1980, and, and suggested that this might uh, you know, the, yeah, there's a small subset of children who apparently actually have an allergy here, but the majority of the children that we're seeing, that we were seeing anyway at our facility, 
um, did not have a food allergy and we still don't know what's causing it. And I speculated, you know, might this be something that's just part of the normal uh, distribution of uh, behaviors, characteristics, proclivities, uh, tendencies, um, you know, among human beings. I mean, might this be part of the spectrum of normal, perhaps an extreme end of the spectrum, but still. Mm -hmm. And um, then uh, a few years later, must have been maybe, I don't know, six, eight years later, we were, uh, we had left that organization and we were in Atlanta and I was running a business and, and our uh, middle child, our son, um, uh, started failing in, in middle school. And Louise and I took him to a, an educational spe uh, testing specialist. And he did his little song and dance for a couple of hours with all the tests. And then he brought our son in and along with Louise and me and sat us all down and said, well, son, I, you know, I have some, uh, some good news and bad news. The bad news is you have a brain disease and uh, it's a disorder. It's called attention deficit disorder. It means that your brain is basically broken. Um, uh, that's the bad news. The good news is there's some drugs that we can use to treat this. And, and while your chance of ending up in jail is dramatically higher than normal kids, and you probably will have a hard time in school. In fact, I wouldn't counsel you to even consider college. Um, nonetheless, you can have a good functional life. And in fact, there's lots of occupations where you could do really well. Have you ever considered car mechanics? And my son is like, I want to be a marine biologist, you know? And the guy's like, oh no, you know, if you're a car mechanic, you want to go with the German cars. You know, that's where the real money is. Don't, don't work on Buick. And he goes into this rant and my son's got tears in his eyes. And wow. that, that was the moment when it really hit me that I've got to come up with, uh, I have, A, I have to understand this. And B, almost regardless of what I learn in my research, I have to figure out a better way to characterize this than tell my son that he's got a brain disease. And that's now, uh, to this book. Sorry to interrupt, but I just, I'm so curious because I can relate to, there must have been an intuitive feeling inside of you as a father, as a parent that had you go, I think this is bullshit. Or what was your reaction internally, the dialogue as this doctor was talking? Well, one of the things that he did is he went through the characteristics of ADHD and, you know, said people with this are more distractible. And as a result, when they're sitting in class, they'll notice the bug crawling across the ceiling instead of listening to the teacher. And I was thinking, I did that my whole life. And then he'd say, you know, and they're more impulsive. They tend to just say things without thinking about them and, and uh, you know, be doing something before they even realize that they decided to start doing it. And I thought, that's me. And, and then he's like, you know, and, and one of the main characteristics is risk taking. You know, these kids love to, to just push the envelope and get out there and get a lot of adrenaline. And I'm like, that's me my whole life. And yeah. so, you know, <laughs> when the finger of disease is pointed at you, um, which it was that's being directly, I mean, I wasn't sitting there going, I wasn't saying this out loud, you know. Right, right, right. Um, it, it causes you to, to go, oh, wait a minute, let's rethink this. So, so it's a little bit like you, you were a little bit like, oh, well, I want to look into it for him, but also for me, because it seems like we're made from the same, right, cloth. And my three brothers and my dad and, uh, you know, et cetera. Mm. Interesting. So uh, what, when somebody would tell you today, right, I mean, this is, you started writing about this uh, over 20 years ago. Uh, when somebody comes up to you nowadays and says, is ADHD real or what is it? Tell me about it. What would you, in a nutshell, tell them that what ADHD is? 
Well, it's absolutely real that there are some people who have um, much higher levels of impulsivity, risk taking and distractibility than, you know, the bell curve norm. And uh, and you can call that whatever you want. I, I call it being a hunter in a farmer's world. I believe that the this is a set of adaptive characteristics that had a, a positive value at some point in the history of, of humanity and still do. I mean, we know that there's a bunch of different diseases, in quotes, that confer a positive advantage to us. That's why they survived three million years in our genome. Um, uh, for example, sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia is a terrible problem if you're if you're a person of African ancestry and you're living in New York City. Um, you know, it's a it's, it can be debilitating. But if you're living in Africa or in those parts of Africa where where malaria is endemic, sickle cell anemia prevents you from dying from malaria. And uh, Tay-Sachs disease, a disease that you know is disabling and and in some cases kills people, uh, seems to confer immunity to tuberculosis, which was once endemic among you know the the Central European population, mostly Jewish population that, that gets Tay-Sachs disease in disproportionate numbers. And you know the, the list, even cystic fibrosis appears to have some some adaptive value. So. Uh, I think that, you know, and, and this, by the way, this, this realization has led to a whole new field of medicine, um, you know, adaptive evolutionary medicine, where we're starting to re-examine this whole spectrum of diseases and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe this has some value somewhere sometime. And so, you know, the conclusion I came to is for people who are hunters in a farmer's world, who do have these characteristics that would make you a successful, uh, you know, hunter-gatherer out there, and probably make you a lousy farmer because farmers, you know, need to focus and be patient and be thoughtful and all that kind of thing. Um, right, right. Those people who are hunters, there's plenty of hunter jobs out there. Whether you want to be a private detective or an investigative journalist or, or uh, you know, in the media where you've got constant change and constant adrenaline, I, I'm telling you, you know, having been in the media most of my life, it is filled with people with ADHD. And even in, yeah. even in hardcore professions, I mean, in the medical profession, for example, um, you know, talk to 10 ER docs. You're gonna find probably six or seven of them are, could be diagnosed right. with ADHD. On the other hand, if you talk to 10 psychiatrists, you know, people who are, are paid to sit there quietly and listen to you for a whole hour, odds are you're gonna find very few. So, you know, in every field, uh, I think practically, uh, there are subsets of those fields where this is actually an adaptive set of, of genetically conferred characteristics. Now, knowing that, right? So you were there with your son and the doctor, the psychologist says, uh, you probably shouldn't go to college. It's not going to work out for you, son. Um, what came up for you? Because obviously everyone wants their child to do well in school and get good grades and go somewhere, right? Uh, was there something about the education system that, that sort of, uh, or was that later in your research where you realized that that had a lot to do with, with diagnoses uh, around ADHD? I wasn't system? thinking at that level at that moment. Um, you know, one of the things that I did know from, from my work with those kids and my work with the various therapists that we had hired to work with kids and all the reading and studying that I had done in classes I'd taken back in the late 70s and early 80s, was that the principal thing that determines our fate and future. In fact, arguably the, the, the principal thing that determines the quality of our lives is not our life circumstances or the, the 
opportunities or problems that are thrown at us by life, but the stories we tell ourselves about them, which lead to or inform our behavior. So, you know, if the principal story that we're telling ourselves is that we're victims, we respond to things very differently than if the principal story that we're telling ourselves is that we have agency. If the principal story we're telling ourselves is that we're broken, it's a very, you get a very different response to life's challenges than if the principal story we're telling ourselves is I'm merely different. And we're seeing this kind of reframing happening you know, among minority groups, we're seeing it among, uh, you know, among disabled people, in quotes, um, and because ADHD was long characterized as a disability, it's still recognized as such by most educational institutions um, as a learning disability. And, and, you know, and I think it's really important that we get control of the stories we tell ourselves, particularly the ones we tell ourselves about who we are and where we fit in the world, because they are so determinative. And so part of me was absolutely furious that this guy was telling my kid a story that he was expecting my child to internalize, that he was broken. And on the other hand, part of me was going, you know, is there something to this? You know, what, what have I missed here? I mean, you know, I'd been through the whole thing with Feingold and I didn't want to, you know, I mean, I just paid the guy, you know, a hundred bucks an hour to do this. I didn't want to say, wait a minute, I think I know something about this. I wrote a paper about this, you know, back you know, 10 years ago. Um, you know, that wouldn't have <laughs> been a good <laughs> yeah. I just listened and, and, and then went home and spent the next month obsessively combing the internet. And th this was in the early 90s uh, when basically the internet was CompuServe. But, you know, doing my research and going to the library and talking to every, you know, I called up uh, three or four former colleagues of mine, you know, who, who were still working with kids or still doing psychotherapy and said, you know, what do you know about this? I mean, I just went on a learning binge. Yeah. And uh, so you kind of, I was going to ask that was going to be my next question is how it affects, how can it affect a, a human being to start thinking that they're not whole, that they're broken, right? That they're disordered, like you said. Because um, I saw that with my son, he started developing a tick disorder. And then they said, oh, he also has a tick disorder. And I thought, isn't that kind of a collateral, uh, you know, symptom here? Like he now thinks there's something wrong with him and people are watching him and there's an occupational therapist at school poking him to pay attention. I would develop a tick disorder. I would be like, you know, and sure enough, after we switched schools, uh, that was gone. I mean, yeah. quickly gone. That was yeah, I mean, you know, tick, tick disorders can, I mean, obviously there's, you know, people who've been on Thorazine long-term, you get tardive dyskinesia, which is a severe tick disorder, which is the consequence of a drug. Um, but uh, obsessive compulsive disorder in mild forms can produce ticking behavior. Um, mm. you know, I've done that my entire life. If I, you know, since I literally, since I was five, six years old, my earliest memories, if I step on a crack with my left foot, I have to step on the next crack with my right foot. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm I'm almost seventy years old, and I still do it, and and it's not even conscious, right? I mean, you know, it's like there's a little bit of OCD, I think, in all of us, but I think in particular for people with ADHD, that OCD is is probably one of the few things that is a major survival mechanism that balances out the ADHD. And so, you know, uh, very often tick disorders are associated with it. Uh, but the other half of it is anxiety will produce tick disorders. So, or it might evoke right. that OCD, you know, ticking that is in there anyway. Now, when parents, you know, nowadays, 
if parents go through what you and I went through, uh, the next step, obviously, if you're buying into what I call a very the loudest narrative in, in the room, which is medication, that's supposedly uh, uh, based on Russell Barkley, the only effective treatment, right? Or the most effective treatment, I should say. Uh, why do you think so many parents so quickly go to medication? Well, we, we live in a society where we are told, and, and for good reason, frankly, that medications are quick fixes. You know, and, and in many cases, it's absolutely the case. I mean, if you've got a severe infection and you don't take antibiotics, there's a good chance you're going to die. You know, the development of antibiotics literally changed the world. Um, and, and that's true of, you know, dozens of different diseases for which there are good, effective drugs out there. So, you know, it's not any kind of stretch. It doesn't require any uh, mental gymnastics to think that if there's something not working right in your brain, that a pill will cure it. Um, we don't just do this with ADHD. We do it with depression. We do it with bipolar disorder. Uh, you know, we do it with schizophrenia. Uh, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of, of uh, you know, brain disorders or mental diseases uh, for which there are medications, some more, some less effective. And so, you know, if, if, the kid, if your child can't succeed in school and somebody comes along and says, here, take this pill and you give the child the pill and suddenly the child is doing better in school, you know, case closed. Uh, you know, sadly, nobody ever said, well, hey, what, what about trying a different school? Might there be a school that's adapted to his style of learning? I mean, it's so bizarre that we're taking kids whose learning style is not, you know, it's kind of the square peg in the round hole of our public and private school systems and, and, and saying, well, you know, we're going to medicate the peg. We're going to medicate the kid to fit the school instead of saying, hey, how about if we changed our schools to meet these kids? And by the way, what would happen to those farmer kids if the schools became hunter kid friendly? It turns out everybody actually learns better. So, you know, it's, it, it, but, but, you know, for the first 30 years or 20 years anyway of the conversation around this topic, um, the idea of changing the schools outside of a fringe, you know, it was mostly being pushed by people like yeah. Mon the Montessori school movement and, and uh, the Steiner, you know, the, the Waldorf school movement. Outside of them, uh, you know, if you talked about changing schools, you were considered a crackpot. Yeah. One of the reasons we started a school. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. And we, d we did that, right? We recently um, switched to child-led and the diff like the results are amazing. I mean, Kai is confident. He's still very active, but not hyperactive. He um, is aware of the fact when something is boring uh, and, and finds ways to get it done, right? Because mm -hmm. he knows that we're not going to force it upon him six hours a day, but there'll be a, something to learn and we'll figure out a way. And that, that groundedness, that peacefulness away from his previous anxiety for us was huge. And like you said, why are parents not considering switching schools? Well, it has economic reasons too, right? Not everybody can switch schools or get go to a private school. Although I'm a big believer of where there's a will, there's a way. Um, but I want to take this a level up to the sort of what I call the carrot on the stick, right? We want to give our kids a good life. And so this sort of Ivy League track from the top down says, if you get into the best schools, then you have the best careers. And make the most amount of money and then you'll be happy, right? So can you talk a little bit about supply and demand? At least I don't want to lead you, but there's something there that I feel that, that if that changes at the top, then the bottom 
the demand will change too, potentially. That's a theory I have. Hmm. If we stop, if we stop selling uh, that sort of happy lifestyle that's only available through that track, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that, Roman. I mean, you know, the, 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 the sad reality is that as a result of 40 years of Reaganomics, you know, in 82, Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act and all the other antitrust laws. And as a result, our business landscape has become entirely dominated by giant monopolies. And the, the old mom and pop shops, the small businesses, the locally owned businesses, or even the entrepreneurial opportunities, which uh, it, you know is right in the sweet spot for for hunters, hunters, for yeah. young hunters, you know, becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, those are those are you know 90 percent of those are gone now compared to forty years ago. I've started seven businesses in my life. I don't think that in this business environment today, um, I could start a successful business, or it would be a much more difficult thing than it was back in the sixties, seventies, and eighties when I started most of my businesses. Um, the Reaganomics has just decimated the landscape. And as a consequence of that, these large employers, because they're basically batch processing employees, uh, just come up with criteria. Okay, if you don't have a four-year degree with at least a three-point, we're not even going to look at your resume, for example. You know, simply because it's like a way of narrowing the field so that they can, so that they can get to what they want. Um, so, uh, you know, and that's, that's what a lot of the, of the better score, if you didn't go to a good school, you know, if you're a graduate of a junior college or a, or a state school, you know, you're not going to be considered as well as Yale or Harvard. So, right. you know, so what happens is that the kids who have trouble learning, um, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, even probably the 80s, they would hire somebody to take their tests for them like Donald Trump did. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can't you can't play that game anymore. And, and uh, if you try to try to BS the system, you end up going to jail, as we just recently saw. So uh, I think it's just gotten a lot harder and a lot more brutal for young people, particularly young people who have ADHD. Especially right now with with COVID. Right. I mean, you have so many shops closing it was already happening before where the big um, Walmarts and stuff would come to town and take away business. But now it's like, Jesus. But then my question would be, can hunters, can people with ADHD traits, uh, as you so beautifully uh, in your list, you know, you put the trade as a positive for the hunter, which is like, if you're impulsive, you know, you're scanning, you're paying attention, you're taking in a lot of information, uh, that, that's a good trade. I, I would I would ask, do you believe that hunters are actually made to go through these turbulent changes in society that they can reinvent, they can uh, take on something new and, and succeed, right? Right. Or, or yeah, just, just to summarize real quickly, the, the three principal characteristics of ADHD and then and the fourth is hyperactivity, which kind of is self-explanatory. Um, but our distractibility, impulsivity, and a need for high levels of arousal or stimulation or risk-taking. And distractibility, if you're a hunter-gatherer and you're walking through the forest and you're not noticing everything around you all the time, in other words, being constantly distracted by your environment, you may miss that rabbit over there that's going to be your lunch, or you might miss that bear over there that wants to make you its lunch. And in either case, you, you are not going to uh, continue to be part of the gene pool. Um, 
Similarly, if you're chasing a rabbit through the forest and a deer goes by, this is impulsivity, and a deer goes by, uh, you can't sit down with a pad and a pen and say, let's do a careful risk-benefit analysis. Rabbit, easier to catch, less meat. Deer, harder to catch, a lot more meat. Uh, let's see, which shall I do? And by that time, they've both gone, right? Um, and, and then, the, you know, the love of risk. People who wake up in the morning and say, you know what sounds like fun? Let's go out there and, and find something to eat in a world where there's things that want to eat me as well. Uh, that kind of person is is going to succeed. The kind of person, uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, who wakes up in the morning and says, oh my God, there's scary things out there, lions and tigers and bears. I'm just going to sit here in the cave. They're going to starve to death because they're risk averse. Um, if you were a farmer, if you were living in an agricultural world and, uh, you know, you planted the, the crop and now you've got to wait six weeks for it to start growing and you start getting impatient and going, hey, you know, that, you know, I'm, I, you know, and wandering off or doing other things. You know, uh, you, you're not going to be a successful farmer. Uh, you've got to pick bugs off plants hour after hour, bug after bug, bug day after day, year after year. And and uh, distractibility. Oh, there's a butterfly. Let me chase it into the forest. And you forget to harvest the crop. I mean, it would be a disaster to have that hunter mentality being a farmer. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it would be a disaster for a farmer to be dropped into, you know, into the jungle or savannah. Now, those are the, the extremes. Obviously, right. all of us have, have some mixture of all of those characteristics, and our environment may bring out or suppress some of those characteristics as well. But I think that you know, once you think in those terms, then you get it, that there are, there are jobs and there are opportunities and there are ways of doing things that are ideally suited to both. You know, If you want to be a CPA when you grow up, better be a farmer. You know, if you want to be an investigative journalist, you're going to do much better if you're a hunter. Yeah. And would you say then that basically by medicating children with ADHD traits that were turning a, a hunter into a farmer, right? And because of the school system. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that the, 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 the difference between hunter brains and farmer brains there are some identifiable but relatively small structural differences, but I think the main difference uh, has to do with neurotransmitter levels, principally dopamine. And one of the things that we know is that the stimulant drugs increase dopamine in the brain. So they probably basically turn uh, hunter brains into farmer brains. Um, and, and for a short period of time, you know, until the drug right, right. off. For the time being, know. yeah. Yeah, my own personal experience when my son uh, was first put on these drugs, which we did for a few months to see what happened, you know, at the advice of the, of the doc, um, I tried them and it was amazing to me. I, you know, I hate editing my own writing. I was I was making a living as a writer back then as well and and or part of a living. And suddenly I could sit down with something that I had written and spend two hours line by line, word by word, carefully editing it. The one thing that was like the awfulest part of being a writer I could do when I took Ritalin. And uh, so what it did was it taught me how to be a farmer when I need to be a farmer. And after doing that a few times, I didn't need the Ritalin anymore to do it. It wasn't pleasant, but I, I acquired the skill set. So I'm not, you know, one of these people who's fanatically anti-medication. Um, what I am fanatically anti is telling kids that they're broken and medicating them over the long term. I mean, if somebody's going to use medication, I would say, don't take it every day. Use it on an ad hoc basis. You know, take it when you're going to take your final exam. Uh, take it when you know, when you've got to go to the classroom of the insanely boring teacher. 
Um, but for the things, you know, that you enjoy, that you're having a good time at, you know, not only do you not need the medication, but you're probably going to do better without it. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. It's so funny. We, I also recently tried, uh, I don't know if we talked about this yet, but I tried the Adderall, both versions and Ritalin. And one thing my wife said, she said, you know, most of the time you were being a righteous jerk and you were just so like strung, you know, and she said, but you did pay more attention to me. And I was like, damn it. You know, yeah, yeah Louise said the same thing. <laughs> so whoever's listening here, do not take uh, ADHD stimulant drugs to uh, be more present with your partner, but it is. Or try it for a week, you know, or try it for a <laughs> week try it on and bring it into your life. Wait, I have a date with my wife tonight. Maybe I should uh, have some Ritalin left. Let's see. Oh, uh, no. It's just, you know, have you learned? The, I, I mean, basically, it's have you learned the skill? You know, it's just like yeah. we're, we're training wheels on bicycles before we learn how to ride the bicycle. But once you know how to ride the bicycle, you don't need the training wheels anymore. Yeah, that's what I'm getting from you, too. And same here. We're not like anti-pharma, but it is anti when that becomes a crutch. And when we're not looking f like ahead into the future, how we can maybe switch schools or change the dynamics in the family or, you know, uh, do some of the other treatments. If we just use the medication as a crutch, then I believe there could be some, there are potentially dangerous side effects, right? Medical uh, issues that happen later. What would you say uh, are some of the potential psychological effects that a, a child becoming an adult can take into their future if they've been medicated for years and years uh, from your experience, what you've heard or researched? What I saw when we were, when Louise and I were running this, you know, the Salem Children's Village, the Community for Abused Kids, was that I think probably four-fifths of the kids we had who were on medication, and we worked very hard to get them off medication within 90 days of admitting them, um, although we did have one kid who was on medication long term, but it wasn't uh, stimulants for ADHD. It was a whole nother thing. It was bipolar disorder. Um, but the one thing that I saw repeatedly, and I also saw it when the, when the prescription was written for my own son and for me, was that they were passing out doses that were just wildly more than they should have been. Um, you know, for, uh, in my own experience, I found that I could take a five milligram tablet of uh, Focalin, which is the, the, the newest version of Ritalin, um, and break it into quarters. So I'm taking like 1.25 milligrams, which is not even considered a clinical dose, right? Five milligrams is the lowest possible dose. That 1.25 milligrams is more than enough to, to give me three or four hours of good focus without having my blood pressure jacked up, without feeling like a speed freak, without bouncing my leg while I'm sitting and all mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So I think the number one problem um, with medication, because um, very few of these doctors have ever taken it themselves. They don't know what it's like inside. They've been you know, brought up in a medical world where taking the drugs that you're prescribing is considered you know, illegal drug abuse. Um, hmm. As a consequence of that, they really don't understand the, the subtleties of these drugs. Um, you know, the obvious major side effect of stimulant drugs, aside from euphoria and stimulation when you're taking way too large a dose, uh, or insomnia is uh, hypertension. Mm -hmm. And that's where adults have to be very careful when they take these drugs because, you know, you spike your blood pressure, you're, you're, you're playing with a stroke or a heart attack. Mm 
so when I took the extended release from Adderall, I just couldn't, I couldn't sleep till like 5am. I was jacked up. And then I was thinking, giving this sort of minimal dose to my own son at seven years old, what would that do to what you weigh? Which is, I can't even, somebody recently told me that their, uh, they were, a child was given 75 milligrams or 65 milligrams. And I was like, how is that even? That's like, that's like IV cocaine. I mean, I took cocaine when I was a teenager, you know, everybody did back in the seventies and eighties. And, and, um, the first time I tried Adderall, I was like, Whoa, this is cocaine. And it really is. And, uh, which is why, you know, Donald Trump used to crush it up and snort it back in the eighties <laughs> and maybe still is, I don't know. But you know, that it, it uh, these drugs are strong. These are potent drugs and they have, you know, a consequential effect. And people make decisions while they're on these drugs that they very often later regret. Well, there's a, there's a question, right? So there's, there's a few myths that we're addressing in this film and the movement. One is that a lot of parents are told, if you don't medicate your, ch- your child with ADHD, they will later self-medicate. And we've, I've talked to now hundreds of parents and there's been lots of cases where the kids, even though they were medicated, they self-medicated. So what do you say to that? Like what's, you know? Well, if, if the sales pitch is, we're going to give your kid drugs as a child and we're gonna teach your kid that these drugs are gonna help their brain. But when they grow up, they're not gonna to wanna to take drugs. Uh, that does not seem logical to me. Well said. I, I couldn't have said it any better. It just makes no sense, right? And and I get that there's a 50-50, right? You, one kid may, one kid may not. But um, talk to me about prisons. I hear a lot that uh, a lot of ADHDers uh, end up in prison, which obviously doesn't give the unmedicated ADHDer, uh, doesn't put them in a good light. Parents go, oh, my God, I don't want my, my child to end up in prison, why do you think if there's a high um, uh, level of, of ADHD in the prison uh, population? Because of impulsivity. It's one of those three cardinal characteristics. Uh, you know, impulsivity is, you know, uh, the technical definition is really, you know, making decisions and acting on them before you even realize you have made the decision. You've engaged in the thought process. It's behavior precedes cognition. And, you know, it should be the other way around. Cognition should precede behavior. And so people make stupid decisions and those stupid decisions lead them to jail. Um, you know, that that, again, uh, is not necessarily the result of being medicated or not medicated. It's it's the result of learning or not learning the skill set of noticing when you're being impulsive and, and yeah. learning to catch yourself. And there's a variety of ways that people learn to catch themselves. I mean, you know, uh, of, you know, religion actually teaches us some of those internal mechanisms or games or strategies for catching ourselves or give us gives us a framework uh you know is this sin or not kind of thing um not that i'm a big fan of religion but um you know it it works for some people and there are other systems um but i but i don't think that you can uh you know universally say that that uh, people are in jail because of adhd i think it's much more complex than that and it's also uh, the environment, obviously, right? You could say uh, if a child is brought up in a very negative, very, uh, you know, struggling, uh, divorced parents, drugs, abuse, whatever environment versus somebody who's brought up 
in a loving family, the chances are they're not both going to end up in jail. It just, I feel the environment is also a huge, a huge part of that, the, the, the parenting and the. One of the things that we used to say to our kids, both our, our own three children and also the kids at Salem, at Salem, was, you know, when they were acting out and we were intervening and prevent, preventing them from acting out, whether it was, you know, holding them to prevent a tantrum or simply saying, no, I'm not going to take you to the store because you're throwing a fit here. Um, it, it, we would always say, I love you so much that I'm not going to let you engage in that behavior. Mm -hmm. I love you so much that I'm not going to give in to, to, um, to demands that I think are inappropriate and that are not going to serve you well in, in adult life. And that frame is so important. Kids, you know, there's, if you can build love into your discipline, it is effective. It gets internalized. There's no internal resistance to it. But on the other hand, the parents are like, um, you know, quit throwing that tantrum. You're always yelling and screaming. You're a terrible child. You know, that internalizes a completely different message that doesn't necessarily teach that child how to control their impulsivity. Yeah, that's very well said and very timely. My wife and I are dealing with some of that right now. So I'm going to try that out with Kai. It works. Say, I love, you know, I love you so much that you cannot play video games till 1 a.m. today. Yeah, you know? I'm, I'm going to let you do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. Thank you. Now, uh, there's a very interesting uh, um, point that you brought up around uh, Maslow's Pyramid, and I forgot exactly which book that's in. I'm sure you know exactly where that's in, but I remember seeing it. And tell me about the, the need to feel alive for aliveness. Like, how did that come into the equation while you were doing research on ADHD? Yeah, the chapter on that is in my new book, uh, ADHD, Hunter in a Farmer's World. Uh, it was in another book uh, prior to that, but that book's out of print. Mm. And, and uh, essentially, uh, what I was positing is that, uh, you know, Maslow, in his hierarchy of human needs, you start at the bottom, safety, you know, we need to, to uh, well, homeostasis, actually, at the bottom, you know, we need to breathe, we need to drink, we need to eat, we need to, to use the bathroom, um, you know, we need to maintain our body temperature. Um, once those needs are met, then safety need kicks in. You know, if you're walking across the street and looking around, whoa, wait a minute, you know, I got to stay safe. And then we climb up the, the ladder, but those are like the primal ones. And, and then above safety, then you get into the social needs, the low social needs, social acceptance, the higher social needs, love and interpersonal relationships. And then at the very top, you know, intellectual and, and uh, spiritual needs or, or what Maslow referred to as self-actualization. And I, theorized uh, as a way of explaining why, uh, you know, the, and I, I was writing this back in the 80s and back then or the early 90s back then, uh, AIDS was killing people. And we knew that AIDS was a sexually transmitted disease by that point. And yet people were still having sex, uh, unprotected sex. And I was like, why would people do that? And it struck me that there, because that's, that's challenging safety. And according to Maslow, you know, nothing that has to do with emotion or intellect will challenge safety because safety is more foundational than that. It's at the base of the pyramid. 
And so I thought, you know, there's got to be a, a, a human need that is actually below safety on that pyramid. It's more important than safety, that people will sacrifice safety in order to get it met. And, and uh, you know, I was trying to figure out what could that need be and that would cause somebody to have unprotected sex or make other stupid decisions that could cause them to die. Yeah. And um, it, it struck me, and I don't, I was reading well, the whole long story anyway, um, it struck me that it, it, it's the need to feel alive. And, you know, that, that uh, if you don't feel alive, you will do what it takes to feel alive. And, and I mean, talk to fighter pilots, talk to people in high mm -hmm. adrenaline, high stim, high stress environments, talk to, talk to uh, ER docs, you know, I feel uh, most alive when I'm going 600 miles an hour or when I'm confronted with a guy who's had his guts blown apart by a bullet. That's when I feel alive, when I've got the real challenge and life and death is at stake. And so then I was wondering, okay, why is it that some people don't engage in impulsive activity that threatens their safety and other people continuously do? And it struck me that this is probably something, and, 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 and that, violation of safety, by the way, goes away when you take stimulant drugs. People on Ritalin mm -hmm. are less likely to engage in the kinds of behaviors that could kill them, you know, the impulsive behaviors, uh, along with a whole other spectrum of impulsive behaviors. Well, what we know is that the stimulant drugs, you know, regulate basically the volume control of the nervous system. Uh, with the exception of our, of our olfactory bulb, the, the exception of smell, all five of our other senses are all mediated by a gland called the thalamus or a part of the brain structure called the thalamus at the brainstem. And they, your, the nerves from your eyes go into the thalamus, from, from your ears go into the thalamus, your afferent nerves, your, your touch nerves. Um, the, every, everything, goes and, and, and everything goes into the thalamus. And then the thalamus basically acts like a volume control. It regulates that. And then it distributes that through some of the longest nerves of the brain, actually, and the fastest nerves in the brain to the various places so that the visual information goes to the occipital visual cortex and auditory information is going to Broca's and Warnicke's region in the temporal lobes, et cetera. So then um, I thought, okay, so it must be that that volume control of the thalamus, A, has a set point that's determined genetically. So some of us, or, or maybe experientially, but I'm pretty sure this is genetic. Um, so that some of us are born constantly feeling like, you know, I'm not quite alive. I really need to reach out into the world and feel alive. And others of us are born with such sensory input. The world is so bright. The sounds are so loud. The feeling is so real that, uh, that, you know, we have no doubt that we're alive, that, you know, it's just constant. Whoa, I'm, you know, I'm under assault. And it, there have been um, over the years, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Freud's uh, contemporary, Jung, Carl Jung, mm -hmm. uh, speculated about this, uh, but never offered it as a specific theory, um, that, that there might be some kind of volume control that essentially had to do with senses that, that caused people to need to periodically activate themselves. Um, and so little Johnny now has, is born with low thalamic gain, a low volume control. So the whole world is kind of distant to him. That's his norm, right? It's the, the, the sound is not that loud. The sight is not that bright. And he's sitting in the classroom 
and the teacher's droning on and on, and he's starting to feel like he's not alive. And that need for aliveness, like I said, it's more important than the need for safety. And so that need for aliveness starts kicking in in his brain going, oh, my God, we're dying, we're dying, do something, do something. So little Johnny reaches out and pulls Sally's pigtail in front of him, and she goes, wow. And, and the teacher's looking at him, and all the kids are looking at him, and all of a sudden, boom, he gets a burst of adrenaline. His, thal- his thalamic gain goes way up because this is what happens in response to, to you know, adrenaline. Uh, and, and, and some of the other uh, hormones that are associated with fight or flight. And suddenly he's sitting there going, I'm alive. I'm in deep trouble, but I'm alive. <laughs> and this explains, in my opinion, this explains, number one, why these kids and adults will take actions that will destroy them socially in school, uh, you know, pulling Sally's pigtails, or kill them as adults engaging in unprotected sex, and these are only two of you know, thousands of examples you can come up with, why they would do this. And, and then in addition to that, why stimulant drugs cause them to be less likely to engage in those behaviors. Because when you take a stimulant drug, your body starts cranking out dopamine, dopamine turns up the volume control of the thalamus. I mean, that's known, this isn't theoretical. And so as the thalamus turns up its volume control, suddenly the world gets brighter and louder and your need to be alive is satisfied. And you don't have to jump in a car and go 120 miles an hour to get it. You can do it sitting in a classroom. That just reminded me of, you know, when people cut themselves, you could say they know it's not going to be safe, not going to be good, but the, the feeling alive when that blade goes through or the pain or something there, very similarly, like gives them a, that feeling of like, I matter, I'm alive, I'm breathing. I'm- there is a, there's a whole school of uh, psychological literature around BDSM and some other kinds of practices like that, some of them sexual, some not, uh, that's essentially positing the same thing, that there's a deep yeah. need there that's not the result of child abuse, that it, this has something to do with, with uh, how we're wired, essentially. Mm. It's fascinating, Tom. I mean, I have to say it's such a, you know, having done myself now four years of research and and I've not written any books yet, but just seeing this wealth of information and it it can really overwhelm uh, parents, you know, parents that are just like three jobs, divorced, have three kids, one of them has ADHD. What would you recommend to a parent that today, uh, this afternoon at four, they're, they're getting their tests and the psychiatrist or psychologist says, your child has ADHD. Uh, you know, we recommend you probably uh, medicate him. What would you say to a parent who's on the fence about that and just doesn't have this amount of research to, to dig through, right? Well, you know, you and I had the luxury that probably the majority of Americans don't uh, of having, uh, you know, a good enough income and enough control over our own lives, uh, that we could do what was necessary for our kids so that they could get through this without medication. Um, you know, our, our, uh, our son, we ended up putting him in a private school that was largely student driven. Um, yeah, our youngest, uh, we homeschooled and, you know, I get it that most parents don't have those options. So, uh, number one, I would say, you know, if, if, if you're a parent who's living on the edge and the only reasonable choice you have is to medicate your child, and uh, in particular, if your insurance will cover it or if Medicare or Medicaid will cover it, um, don't be afraid of trying it. 
uh, over the short term and see what happens. But instead of starting with whatever dose you're given, and this this is medical advice, I suppose, which I shouldn't be. So don't take this as medical advice. What I would do, let me rephrase that. What I would do is I would I would titrate that drug way, way down. I would start out with a quarter tablet of whatever my child is prescribed and try that for a week. And if that doesn't produce a result, go to a half a tablet, et cetera, uh, you know, and work, work your way up to the prescribed dose or ask the, the doc to start out with, a, with the lowest dose possible. And even then I would consider titrating it down. Um, and then while, you know, and, and that's like triage, you know, that's like dealing with the immediate emergency, you know, dealing with the crisis and, and, and then work with your child. Now that your child has, you know, basically to use a, a terrible metaphor, but one everybody understands that uh, it has been used for ADHD for years. Now that your child has glasses on, now that they see the world differently, now that they can see it a little better, uh, now that it's a little easier for them to study help them to develop study skills and learn how to study. And, and, and there's some great courses online. There's books about this. Of course, there are places you can take your kid to teach them, but a lot of people don't have the resources for that to learn study skills. There's actually a skill set associated with studying. There are all kinds of little tricks, you know, how to do fast math in your head and how to, how to read a textbook and, and you don't just read it straight through and, and uh, you know, et cetera. There, there's ways to study that, that kids can learn. And so use that as an opportunity to teach them that skill set that they can then use when they're no longer medicated. And then, you know, obviously, if there's an alternative environment, educational environment for them or, or life environment for them that is more suited to their neurology, you know, do whatever you can to get them in that environment. And uh, in terms of the long run, uh, again, I bring up Russell Barkley because he's a strong proponent of the medication side. And he says that uh, kids will not outgrow ADHD. Right. How do you feel about that statement? Well, I think to the extent that ADHD is the way that we're wired from birth, he's probably right. Um, what you can outgrow, as it were, I, I hate that word outgrow. What you can do is learn new skills that allow you to uh, take control of your life in spite of your ADHD. And you can uh, have a deep enough, meaningful enough understanding of yourself and of how the world is put together that you can find circumstances, situations, occupations, and things like that, where your ADHD actually helps you rather than hurts you. My last question is, uh, what did you say to your son back then? Or perhaps what would you say to your son today if that would ha was happening again today? How would you explain to your son, or let's say if someone has a daughter, like, about ADHD or about what they quote unquote have or what's what's in front of them? Yeah, a couple months on after and when I had started writing the book, because uh, I really wrote that book, uh, ADHD, Hunter to Farmer's World to my son. Um, a couple months on, you know, I, after I'd done the research, I sat him down and said, here's what I think is going on. I don't think you're broken at all. I think that you are, uh, by the way, just like me, a hunter and the world is organized for farmers by and large. There are parts of the world that are well organized for hunters, but you know, not most of it. And, you know, you're going to have to learn your way through this just like I did. And the way that I did is I found jobs that had constant change, constant stimulation, and where I had a lot of control over my work. And uh, that's literally been the story of my life. 
And I'm guessing that that will be the case for you too. And over the years since then, he's gotten uh, a master's degree. He's running two businesses that he owns. Uh, he's doing well. He's doing very well, in fact. And, uh, you know, I think it's because he, he developed that confidence and, and believed that it was possible. Mm. He's, he's an extraordinary uh, and brilliant uh, human being. Well, I call that a success story, definitely. Me too. Uh, you know? <laughs> And I think that's what parents are after, right? Create children that are successful, have a happy life, and you can obviously attest that your son's doing well. Or help help your children discover their own inner resources because I'm not the one who made him a success. He made him a success. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Tom, again, for uh, taking the time to what I call make a difference in the lives of other parents uh, with children with ADHD or adults with ADHD. Uh, you've done this for... Uh, close to 30 years, I believe, right? And uh, I know you've switched over more to uh, uh, politics and, and social policies and so forth. Uh, but I, I'm just present to, again, uh, what a difference your work makes and you inspired certainly my film, my movement, this podcast. So uh, thank you again for, for, for all of it. No, thank you, Roman. And thanks for the great work you're doing and for, for acknowledging and highlighting, you know, my small part in... in uh, and yeah, try, try to wake the world up to this. Thank you. Thank you.